Judson Bottom by Dodge Zelko Chapter 14 Two Angry Fritters I have one source for my dirt on Herschel Gimby. That source is Jane D'Amato, co-founder of the Riotville Motorcycle Club, so not exactly an ironclad informant. I could look up Gimby's record on my own any time I wanted, but I've never been altogether curious. He had a rambunctious adolescence like most of us. I know he was picked up in his teens for cultivating a sizable marijuana patch alongside a handful of illegal aliens. The whole operation was directed by gangsters who were freighting it to Chicago. According to Jean, and local lore backs him up on this, the judge said young Herschel showed charisma and had merely fallen in with a bad crowd. It couldn't have hurt that Josiah Gimby, his father, was the Judson Bottom postmaster and cavorted with his share of aldermen and city board members on the fairway. The illegals were all routinely deported. Back when I first came to Judson, people would point out Herschel like a Hollywood starlet. He was usually cruising around town on his fat boy. I've never met the man personally, as in shook his hand and struck up a conversation, but we have enough mutual acquaintances that we are well aware of each other. I'm fairly certain of that. He and Gian started riding together shortly after I left Riotville. It's true that Gavin and I would follow his matches religiously back in junior high, Cronus versus the Iron Sheik or King Kong Bundy. So it's funny I've never been tempted to introduce myself or ask for an autograph. Neither has Gavin urged me to obtain one. Some people refuse to shed those interests, retaining a little piece of their impressionable youth. Others, like Gavin and me, try to laugh about them from the smug bastion called adulthood. But then, I'm shitting myself, aren't I? It's Jean who deters me from approaching the cannibal, or the knowledge of their association and the way Herschel's opinion of me must be poisonously skewed. I actually forbade Bruno from watching wrestling, not because I worried about his being desensitized, but because I wanted to shield him from all allusions to the cannibal's legacy. What if Bruno should want to meet him? What if Herschel turned him down, telling him it was all my fault, that his daddy was a turncoat, a gob of establishment slime, and started hurling insults at me right in front of my son? Then I'd be obliged by well-founded masculine tenants to go toe-to-toe with a former pro wrestler. Even if the whole sport is fake, an undertaking like that doesn't make my bucket list. Therefore, I've stayed away from Gimby's Lumberyard, settling for Menards in the next town over. Therefore, I've deprived Bruno of a childhood enriched by thematic violence. Early in the Riotville days, it was a ritual thing for me to get pissed drunk at our little socials, too drunk to ride home. Nobody else had much scruples about it, but then they weren't officers of the law. My job came first, so I wasn't above calling Rhonda for a lift. Only once did Gene get so tanked that he agreed to leave his Harley locked up at the fort overnight and accept a ride home. Rhonda arrived in her little Toyota. Jean pitched himself into the back seat, both of us stinking like cigarettes and beer, the yellow-windowed bar still throbbing with party sounds in the heat of the dark wood. Let's ride out to Newburgh and meet Pogs for the Oil Can Harry show.
Gian managed to slur once he'd hoisted himself upright. Rhonda, let me buy you a drink. She was always polite to the crew, and I commanded enough respect as co-founder and vice president that nobody said within earshot what they really thought of my hot little Mexican wife. Instead, I would get lots of lecherously coded, You're a lucky man, comments, accompanied by devious eyebrow acrobatics. A very lucky man. Bruno's at home all alone. Rhonda smiled into the rearview mirror, as though touched by this invitation. I didn't want to wake him. He's what, almost ten? That's a man in my book. Gian laughed in his peculiar way that could at once feel belligerent and good-natured. People always wondered what he really thought of them. He was so dichotomous, so bipolar in a sense. I would tell them, if you're the sort of person who worries what Gian thinks of you, he probably doesn't like you. Still, it makes me nervous. Rhonda put her hand on the shifter. She was dressed like a woman who had rushed out in the middle of the night, the way women are dressed in ER waiting rooms at one in the morning. Absolutely nothing to be fucking nervous about, Gian bellowed. But he kept smiling. You know those people who smile when they're pissed so they can refute any allegations of being pissed. If you're nervous, you need a drink. That's my motto. Thanks for that, Confucius. I pitched in, shrugging at Rhonda in a what-a-guy sort of way. You just worry about not puking on the seat. He was rummaging around back there, searching his pockets for something, bobbing and lurching the whole car. I never fucking puke. Tell you what, I'll call Pogs and tell him we're coming. But we're not coming. I said, don't lie to the man. Come on, Fonty, don't be a fag. One beer. Newburg is twenty fucking miles out of the way. Gian's head appeared between the front seats like a cuckoo clock. He breathed in Rhonda's face. If you floor it, honey, we can make it in ten minutes flat. His lip curled whenever he'd had too much to drink. That was his own strange tell. And in the green glare of the dashboard light, he resembled an ogre. Rhonda kept her cool. I doubt there's a band playing this late. You know the quickest way to get there, don't you? He lugged his arm forward, pointing unsteadily out the windshield. I usually take LL past that Millersville gas station, then hook it right on County C. The sheriffs never bother prowling out that way. Gian, give it a rest. I moaned into the window enjoying its cool, conchy smoothness against my forehead, like a shell buffed by the sea, watching my breath cloud the pain and muddle the lights beyond. Meet up with that asshole some other night. You're torched, son. He punched me hard in the shoulder with that dumb fucking signet ring he always wore. It hurt like hell, but I pretended not to notice, which was a mistake, because then he just did it again. Look at you. It's too early to be like that. You're torched, and I'll tell you what, you're fucking whipped, too. He's whipped? Rhonda laughed before I could muster my own defense. I'm the one who dragged myself out the house at this crazy hour. He responded by beating a tempo on her headrest, hard enough to make her head rattle with each blow. And meanwhile, you can't make this shit up, chanting like an impudent child. 
Newberg, Newberg, Newberg. Jin, I swallowed an excess of saliva. Get out and take your fucking bike home. Crash into a ditch for all I care. He collapsed backward, mercifully ending his percussive protest. Ah, shit on both of you. It sounded like the sort of thing someone says right before they get out of the car. But he just went on sitting there. Quiet, at last. Rhonda exhaled through her nostrils, shifted into drive. We were moving. I rolled down my window. What I should have done was turn up the radio. Over the wind in the trees and our tires crunching across gravel, Jean muttered at the perfect decibel level to break through the white noise. Marry a spick. The beginning of the statement was unintelligible, but those three words leapt out. In my periphery, I saw Rhonda stiffen. Her arms went rigid like a second steering column. I watched myself not reacting. First for one second, building up my rage. Then another, there's still time. Then another, better make it good. Until the deadline passed and there was no hope of a rebuttal that didn't echo absurd. I was not in the mindset for a fight, clearly, otherwise it would have been reflexive, impetuous. All I wanted was to sleep and for everyone to stop talking. So, later on that night, I claimed I hadn't heard. Rhonda knew better, of course. She called me a slew of emasculating terms that women keep locked behind glass like a fire alarm. In case of emergency may not be unsaid. At the time, it seemed like a hiccup, a moment of spinelessness on my part. In retrospect, I see it as the instant where two of my lifelines chafed and started to fray. The one attached to Riotville and the one attached to Rhonda. I ultimately made the right choice and ditched Riotville, but like all reparations almost by definition, it amounted to too little too late. I park across the street from Herschel's business. Agent Rousseau's vehicle sidles close behind me. This is what it must feel like to be paranoid on acid, seeing the FBI every time you check your mirrors. We are in the heart of Judson Bottoms downtown, a downtown like so many others with an aura of painstakingly preserved history. A painted advertisement for Tide Detergent is so faded it looks like a weak slideshow projection on the brick facade of a pizza parlor. Across the street from the Eustace Rutherford Library sits a vacant lot churned apart by bulldozers, circumscribed by orange plastic fencing. Once, a dwindling strip mall stood here. Now it will host the very latest in a slew of new condos meant to house Judson's growing population. Beyond that lay Herberger's department store, employer of Meredith Strauss and, once upon a time, Alistair Padula. A flagpole clamors outside Wells Fargo, and a rural-smelling wind cannonballs down the avenue, upsetting pedestrians, adding a slant to their walk, pulling at their shopping bags from the various niche boutiques that have cropped up around town, urbane and impermanent. The bars along the strip are open as well, and it's clear who has been patronizing them. The ones most shoddily dressed, with no shopping bags to speak of. 
The ones with an unfocused squint in their eyes from being jettisoned into the sun-drenched streets. Russo and I cross the road. We enter Gimby's handcrafted cabinetry and lumberyard. It entails a two-story office building attached to a large garage, the overhead door of which is open, serving as a workshop where the goods are assembled in full view of curious passers-by. An electronic chime, bee-boo, signals our arrival in the office, which itself is more of a functional workspace than an inviting lobby. Blueprints, order forms, and mislaid tools crowd every inch of free space, Sawdust seems to pepper every surface, cycling through the air like ash during a wildfire. A radio buried somewhere in the morass plays Rush Limbaugh. Out back, through an open screen door, I can hear a large diesel machine guttering. We call hello a few times and get no reception, so Rousseau and I head for the screen door. Out back, Herschel's lot extends clear to the next street. It is a veritable mausoleum of lumber, organized on freestanding iron shelving units, categorized by wood type and cut size. A young man seated in the cage of a forklift is in the middle of using his hydraulic blades to lower a pallet of 4x4s from an uppermost shelf. Expertly, with no more than an inch to spare, he then eases the pallet into an open space beneath the shelves within reach for future use. From a safe distance, we wave to get his attention. Rousseau already has her badge out. The young man disengages the forklift, yanks the emergency brake, and unbuckles himself with the textbook movements of an OSHA instructor. He then clambers out of the cage in blue jeans and steel toe boots, wiping his dusty work gloves together, removing his safety goggles, and letting them hang from a cord around his neck. He sports a bushy black beard, not dissimilar to his employer's, broad shoulders, muscle-bound arms. The beginnings of a paunch poke through his t-shirt. I wouldn't be altogether surprised to learn this is Herschel's long-lost bastard. How can I help you folks? he calls. As he nears, I realize his beard is not black and bushy, but silky, the color of rich, stained mahogany, clearly maintained with a degree of TLC. We're looking for Herschel, I say. Is he in? The young man shakes his head, addressing Rousseau rather than me. Sorry, he's at a convention right now. We'll be for the next three days. I would say I could help you, but I get the impression you're not here to place an order. I'm Agent Rousseau from the FBI. This is Detective Fontenelle. We're investigating the absence of a local woman, and we just wanted to ask him a few questions. We have reason to believe he did some work on her car three weeks ago. It's not much of a lead, but we hoped he might have noticed something out of the ordinary. Sure, sure, the young man nods, as if all of this sounds perfectly blasé and normal. Do you want the address of where he's at? It's not far, just down in Brookfield. That would be great, I say, perhaps a little too forcefully, just to get the kid to meet my eye for half a second, which he does. He leads us back inside, holding the door cordially. Rousseau asks what sort of convention Mr. Gimby is attending. Wrestling, of course, ma'am. He'll never get sick of it, not even when he's 90. It's in a hotel ballroom. A lot of these things are. Holiday Inn, I think he said. He gets asked to do these public spots all the time. Sign autographs, photo ops, all that crap. 
He scours the counter space, shuffling articles left and right, peeking in drawers, paging through overstuffed three-ring binders. He even resorts to tilting a wood-based paper trimmer with a guillotine blade to peer underneath it. By then, I am starting to feel pretty hopeless about the whole venture, when suddenly he snaps his fingers in revelation and strides over to a bulletin board hung beneath a mounted walleye. He untacks a post-it from the hectic collage and hands it to me in triumph. There you go. I can give you a cell too if you like. He recites the number from his contacts and I copy it down on the same post-it, using the side of a filing cabinet littered with business magnets as a flat surface. He might be too busy to answer his phone. He doesn't like to distract himself from his fans. I swear, he thinks of these things like family reunions, seeing all his old rivals and tag teamers again. I've been meaning to join him one of these times. Sounds like, well, it sounds like something to see. I'm sure it is. Rousseau puts out her hand. Thanks for all your help, Mr. I'm Liam. You can tell him Liam sent you. Still grinning broadly, he puts up his own gloved hands. I won't get you all filthy, ma'am, but I really do hope this lady of yours turns up and Herschel can help in some way. So do we. Pocketing the post-it, I echo Russo's thanks and follow her toward the front door. In passing, I receive a slap on the shoulder. I turn to see Liam give me a parting wink. Take her easy, detective. A noisy gaggle of geese soar in V formation across the sky. Skipping town early? Can't say I blame them. I stand at the curb, brushing sawdust from my shoulder, squinting past the sun's rays to study their flight pattern. Russo wastes no time in pulling out her cell. She gets on the line with her supervisor, Pedroza, whom I remember Wojcik describing, with guarded jealousy, as a real commando. Brookfield, right, so about an hour. She summates into the phone, checking her wristwatch. All right, I'll ask him. Then, as an aside to me, are you open to taking a little drive? I think that's outside my jurisdiction. She gives me a disappointed look. Not mine. Fine, then. We'll be around to drop off the cruiser. Rousseau addresses both of us this time. She is quiet through Pedroza's response, her eyes darting around the street in a perfunctory way that makes me feel like a politician with a bodyguard. Yes, understood. She hangs up and is already halfway across the street before I realize we're moving out. You have to work with what you're given. Maybe it's not an ideal situation, being boxed in a state-of-the-art vehicle with one inscrutable FBI agent, not knowing which piece I embody on her chessboard, the pawn, or something a bit more regal, but there are nuggets of opportunity to be mined from my dilemma. They require tact, and the recognition that I'm dealing with someone who is acutely trained to be able to see right through me. I start in a small-talky way by asking Rousseau a little about herself. People can't ride the entire way in silence. It's not like the scenery lends itself to much comment. There are certain instances, like right after a rainstorm, when sunlight dripping through iron clouds can paint the farmland in the palette of a bruised golden apple. Today is not one of those days. She has the Sirius XM tuned to a slinky R&B station, and it's her prerogative to turn up the volume if I start to bore her. Instead, she turns up the charm with me the same as she did with Naomi.
It so happens that she's an actual human being, with a husband, Gilbert, and a home in Racine. Not a drone stashed away in some compound to be activated at the flick of a red switch. The summation is that she's ex-military, grew up middle class in Detroit, with an early love of computers inspired by her father, a systems analyst. She enlisted out of high school in an IT capacity. I was a cyber operations specialist. Essentially, I was hacking for Uncle Sam, and I loved every minute of it. After her tour, Rousseau enrolled at Michigan State, majoring in criminal justice. Undecided over what field to enter with her skill set, she stayed in academia and earned her master's. I was honestly leaning more toward NSA, but the Bureau came and courted me first, and the Bureau is nothing if not persuasive. Only time I've eaten caviar was on the Bureau's tab, back when I was still a hot commodity. Now I've been old news for, let's see, it'll be going on 18 years in October. How was it? All 18 years? Actually, I meant the caviar. I've never tried it. Oh, she laughs. She makes a face as if trying to invoke the taste, rolling phantom fish eggs around in her mouth. Tastes like the sea, I guess. Wasn't too bad. I would eat it again if someone else was picking up the check. I feed her a few less prestigious resume bullet points from my own life before tacking toward what really interests me. What branch did you serve in? Army. I got out just before Saddam invaded Kuwait. Mostly I was stationed in Texas, Fort Sam Houston, not a single tree in sight for miles around. I'm the kind of girl who needs some trees to look at, you know what I mean? Did some time in the Netherlands, though. Beautiful countryside over there. So I've heard. I'm doing the math based on her Saddam comment and realize Rousseau must be at least ten years older than I had her pegged. Glad you had a better run of it than Harper, I say. Seems like the army did a real number on him. For some reason, this played as seamless in my head. A sophisticated trap of dialectical ingenuity, instead of a propped-up box with a carrot and a string. The corner of her mouth makes an amused twitch. I feel my face grow hot. If you want to know about Harper, then ask me about Harper. We're on the same team, aren't we? Sure, of course, but I... Don't worry, if you tread on classified material, I'll let you know. I won't just shoot you in the head. I appreciate that. The humor fades from her face as she notches down the radio. Past her window lies greenish-gold hummocks of pasture, the blue delineation of Lake Michigan. He said it was his casualty detail that rattled him so badly. A different platoon in his battalion got ambushed by IEDs. His guys were sent to clean it up, salvage what equipment they could, gather the dead, try and piece everyone back together. He said heaping all those fried limbs in the back of a jeep like cordwood. I just thank Jesus I was spared from doing anything like that on my tour. You might not have a sane woman sitting beside you otherwise. So he snapped, right there on the spot. We are crossing into Ozauki County. Real territorial prudes, those Ozauki sheriffs. A bunch of pot-bellied bucks in constant rut. It began as nightmares. Nothing out of the ordinary, sorry to say. There were people he could talk to about it, at least until his company moved out of FOB to an isolated outpost. Then he said the nightmares started creeping into all hours of the day. His CEO would be talking to him and Devin would watch him wipe some sweat off his brow, except when the CEO brought his hand out, it'd be smeared with dark, sticky blood. Full-on hallucinations, if what he claims is true. 
I'm keenly sympathetic, but none of that changes the facts. So we've got a mentally unstable ex-boyfriend who shows up in town six weeks before Khadija goes missing. Yes, we do. But we've also got witnesses who can place him at the party until your guys broke it up. We've got Elise Van Driest, as well as two roommates, who can place him at her apartment that night from 1am until he dropped her off at her grandmother's house later that morning. Then we have him on Walmart surveillance until more or less when you apprehended him. I didn't know about the roommates. This is the first I'm hearing about fucking roommates. Were he and Elise ever alone? If they were, it couldn't have been for more than an hour. An hour is enough, I say. Enough for what? For whatever transpired. We don't know what transpired, she insists calmly. What we need is for Khadija to show up in some way, shape, or form. I take that as the polite way of saying dead or alive, and my indignation bubbles over. Well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? That's why you're here. I phrase that poorly, she concedes. What I mean is credit card usage, phone activity, something that would signify she's run away, that she hasn't been sucked up into the ether. She hasn't run away. What makes you so sure? There are a dozen different factors making me so sure, but at present they're all inexpressible. Rousseau is gracious enough to pretend that her question was rhetorical. She turns up the radio, letting me stew in the passenger seat like some gut-shot old cop, one who can't comprehend the town he thought had become part of him. She speeds the entire way with a sense of impunity. We make Brookfield in frankly incredible time. The Holiday Inn is built on a commercial strip within walking distance of various malls, restaurants, and a movie theater. The parking lot appears packed to capacity. Earlier, Rousseau had expressed some curiosity in attending a pro-wrestling reunion. I wish I shared her zeal. Instead, I'm bracing myself for something truly depressing. She texts her supervisor that we've arrived. Then the two of us, she in her suit, I in uniform, head conspicuously into the building. We ask for directions at the lobby. The hotel is very large. I expected we'd be able to follow the din of full-throated voices, but there is only elevator music. The receptionist points us down a corridor, past the pool, into a distinct wing all its own dominated by the ballroom. Before we go, she asks whether we'd like her to call the manager. Rousseau assures her no such precaution is necessary. We navigate toward the ballroom, coming upon two heavy doors. A laminated sign is taped to the surface that reads, WWE, $40 entry. Standing on the brink, I must admit my curiosity is finally piqued. I push open the door, nearly colliding it with a card table. There sits an old woman guarding a cash box. She is eager to take our money and stamp our hands, her sole function at this event but doesn't make too much of a fuss when I pass through telling her we won't belong. The convention is set up like any run-of-the-mill trade expo. Each wrestler has their own booth hung with promotional posters and regalia, their own small table stacked with glamour shots waiting to be autographed. They're all in costume, which lends the scene a circus quality, as fans, 90% of them middle-aged men, stride up and down the aisles, snapping pictures on their phones or soliciting conversation. Anthemic rock music is piped through speakers. A skylight lets in the day's brilliance. The floor is carpeted in some garish hotel pattern, but at the south end is a hardwood area for dancing. 
Today, in place of a DJ, there looms a wrestling arena, an actual ring, its foundation curtained off by black vinyl, its perimeter drawn with taut nylon ropes. Two men are in there at this very moment, sparring, men past their prime, a little loose in the gut and chest, but with arms that could still bend steel girders. One has a grizzled look, long, tangled dreadlocks and a wiry beard. The other dons a spiked crew cut and goatee, recently dyed gent black for the occasion. His nipples and ears shine with piercings. The men's tights adhere to rippling slabs of quadricep. As they explore various holds on each other, Rousseau and I exchange looks. Let's just find Herschel, I say. One good thing, at any rate, is that no one pays close attention to us. We are the least exciting feature in the room. We incorporate ourselves into the roving current, scanning each and every booth. Wait until Gavin hears about this, I think. All these names and faces from the old days popping out at me. Faces confined to television screens, t-shirts, action figures, never to reality. Now, to spy their blemishes, the splotches and lines afforded by hard, lean living... It's not unlike discovering Elmo as your gas station attendant. An arthritic Elmo. With bad teeth. I'm particularly affected when I spot none other than my first celebrity crush, Portia Magnata, the premier female wrestler of the 80s, right up there in the same breath as Fabulous Moolah and Wendy Stone. She is a far cry from her televised heyday, plasticized by Botox and collagen, one globular breast appearing to sag lower than the other inside a zippered jumpsuit. But it is her nonetheless. Watching her cavort with adoring fans who have probably, like me, jerked off to her merchandise more times than they can count, I've got to say it arouses a bittersweet fondness. With no sign of Herschel in the central aisle, we're about to turn around and try the adjacent lineup, but we become bewitched by the sight of one 50-year-old man pinning down another. The submissive man's leg is pinioned vertically in the air. Every meaty fiber in his throat pops out as he grinds his teeth and strains against the weight of his nipple-pierced opponent. Although there is no referee, I imagine the pay offered for such a gig would be insulting, the match is called by giddy fans who all chant in unison, One, two, three... The victorious one releases his prey, whose leg slams to the canvas with amplified impact. The victor rises, both fists clenched in the air, projecting his swollen bronze torso. Sweat glistens on curlicued chest hairs. The spectators applaud. They offer their hands to the combatants to assist them down. Two more wrestlers queued off to the side take their place. One of them is black and a little flabby, but with shoulders a mile apart, heaped on either side of his head. His coarse hair is molded into four conical stalagmites. An impressionable look, to be sure, but I'm having difficulty conjuring up a name. His opponent, I gently nudge Rousseau's arm to point out, is Herschel Gimby. He appears to be the crowd's favorite. A chant immediately goes viral. Cronus, Cronus. The black wrestler has a dullness in his eyes, like, why did I ever agree to this? He hasn't even bothered to squeeze into tights. All he wears is a ripped pair of jeans. Then it hits me upside the head, pressed from the annals of my childhood, 
Levi Onassis, one of those love-to-hate-him heels whose signature was to wrestle in jeans. The urge to snap a photo and send it to Gavin is, by this point, nearly irrepressible. The men circle and size each other up, biding their time, letting suspense churn among the audience until the frenzy is palpable, until the air tastes like nickel and endorphins. They signal their readiness with a discreet head nod, then lunge forward on their haunches, Herschel with a great deal more energy. I can already tell he relishes being back in the ring. He emanates a pure, violent delight, clamping one giant carpenter's hand behind Levi's skull. The other he attaches to the man's bicep, whirling him around, attempting to topple Levi in the first ten seconds of the match. But Levi stays upright. He charges Herschel at mid-pelvis. Herschel splays his legs, going limp, letting his body weight crush down on Levi before he manipulates the move by dropping to his shins, face-planting Onassis on the canvas. Though, not really. Levi's elbows absorb most of the impact. Herschel is extemporizing like a wild man. There is nothing kitsch, nothing nostalgic or cornball about any of this. Not for him. He fights with the same barbarity that made him a star, the same fight-for-your-life intensity beleaguering his face that made him stand out as something of an everyman among his more polished acrobatic peers. Instead of the MMA guru, he's the barroom brawler, though not incapable of a great dropkick now and again. With Levi lying face down, Herschel reaches across his back, grabs hold of his left leg, and pulls ever harder, meanwhile biting his knees around Levi's head like a crotch-smelling vice. It is one of the most uncomfortable, amorphous positions I have ever seen two humans engaged in. As Levi thrashes around half-heartedly, Herschel, the far better showman of the two, huffing and grunting, practically roaring at times, beat purple in the face, hooks Levi's knees over his shoulders and starts dragging the poor bastard's misshapen head round the ring. It is Achilles taunting the gates of Troy with Hector's corpse. I get the impression this is not scripted, that Herschel is trying to shame his opponent into getting more enraged, more impassioned about the sketch. If so, then the desired effect is achieved. Levi liberates himself in a series of mad convulsions, his legs thundering onto the canvas. Herschel's eyes are lit with the prospect of facing a true rival now. The crowd senses this shift, the upsurge in adrenaline saturating Levi's system. The clamor inside the Brookfield Holiday Inn ballroom recalls the days of the Colosseum. The washed-up old men become gladiators, fighting not for cash or fame, but a far more primitive incentive, simply to live to fight again. They read into each other's movements, predicting by a hair what is underway in the enemy's mind, what grip they must position themselves to break out of, what fancy legwork they must avoid to keep from being tripped and pounced upon like wounded meat on the Serengeti. Sweat drips off them in a glaze until they are like two angry fritters. Whatever choreography once existed has fractured into chaos. I glance over at Rousseau to see if she is registering my boyhood excitement, the revival of the id, undeniable when flesh hammers flesh in any context. Judging by her face, one might expect she is politely waiting for the two men to finish up a conversation. Levi is finally able to throw Herschel against the ropes. The great yak of a man comes springing back, no doubt preparing like the rest of us for a classic clothesline or, if we're lucky, a choke slam. 
Instead, Levi surprises us all. He ducks, wraps his cylindrical arms around the cannibal's waist, heaves him skyward until that apex moment when it looks like Herschel is going to be flipped over his back, and then reverses course, swinging Herschel down again. And down he goes, like a pickaxe into a bed of stone. My own teeth rattle watching the collision. My own shoulders cringe at seeing the severe new angle of his neck, convinced that his cervical vertebrae must be reduced to powder. There are some cheers, but mostly an empathic ooh circulates through the crowd. For a glimmer of an instant, Levi is undisguisedly pleased with himself. The spell is broken for him, for me, for every fanboy in attendance, when Herschel makes no move to get back up. Indeed, he doesn't move at all.